majestic God in heaven. There he ministers in the heavenly tabernacle, the true place of worship that was built by the Lord and not by human hands. And since every high priest is required to offer gifts and sacrifices, our high priest must make an offering too. If he were here on earth, he would not even be a priest, since there are already our priests who offer the gifts required by the law. They serve in a system of worship that is only a copy, a shadow of the real one in heaven. For when Moses was getting ready to build the tabernacle, God gave him this warning. Be sure that you make everything according to the pattern I have shown you here on the mountain. But now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood. For he is the one who mediates for us a far, <laughs> mediates for us a far better covenant with God, based on better promises. If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a second covenant to replace it. But when God found fault with the people, he said, The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. They did not remain faithful to my covenant, so I turned my back on them, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord for everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already. And I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. When God speaks of a new covenant, it means he has made the first one obsolete. It is now out of date and will soon disappear. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for a morning where we can come in fellowship with our brothers and sisters and we can worship you and we can honor you with our worship, Lord. Lord, we ask that you would go with us for the rest of this service. You would be with us for the rest of this day and this week, Lord. But as we are here right now, I ask that you would help us to focus on you. As Pastor Doug comes and, and shares the word, Lord, we ask that it would speak to our hearts, that the Holy Spirit would work in our lives through these words. And Lord, that it would affect the way we see the world. It would affect the way that we have a relationship with you. Lord, please go with us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. The story is told of a young boy who had brought a friend to church, and this friend had never been in church before. And as certain things were being done during the service, the unchurched little boy would lean over to his friend and say, what's that? Oh, they're taking the offering now. Well, what's that? And he went on to explain. And then some songs were being sung, and the little boy, again, the unchurched little boy, said to his friend, well, what is that? It's just our time of worship. We sing to the honor and glory of God. And then the, the pastor gets up, and he takes his watch, and he goes like this. And the young boy said, well, what's that? It means nothing. <laughs> I got a clock back there that needs a new battery. 
and it's not telling me to stop. And I've taken my watch off and I've placed it over here. God may have said no to the video, but he hasn't said no to his word. Can I get an amen from the congregation? Well, anyway, before we do begin, a wonderful note from our dear sister, uh, Barb, and her husband, Terry, as they say, thank you for all your prayers and the many ways you contacted us. May God bless you as you have blessed us. Loving Christ, Barb and Terry Carl. And it is a joy to see Barb here this morning and the joy that radiates from her face is wonderfully received to all who will just take the time to say good morning. And I can't think of any better way to give the Lord a praise offering than seeing God answer prayer. Let's give the Lord a praise offering this morning. Amen and amen. Well, it is good to see all of you here this morning on this wonderful, liquid, sunshiny day that God is blessing us, and it's wonderful. And may I ask of all of you of a favor, seeing that I got to lead some singing, I'm not used to that. I'm sweating like an old mule. Would I offend anybody by taking my jacket off? May, may, I, may I do that? Thank you. Thank you. Jeff, what are those sermons that set on back there? Seventy. That's 10 degrees too hot. <laughs> anyway, it's good to see you this morning. Our continued study in the book of Hebrews, still we're dealing with the question, is Jesus still worth following? We don't understand the full impact of what the first century Jewish Christians are going through. We've caught glimpses, maybe a little bit, of the struggles that they're having. They're wrestling with the issue of, should we go back to the old ways? Now, you, you must understand that even during the writing of this wonderful book, the author has penned it during the time of when there was still uh, offerings, there was still a tabernacle uh, or a temple that was still going on. It was still in Rome. It was not until 70 AD when the Romans came in and ransacked and tore it down. Jesus referenced that, if you will, at the time of when his disciples, when he's coming out of the temple, they are all clamoring, saying, isn't this a beautiful edifice? And Jesus said, there's going to be a time when there won't be one stone left on top of another. Well, that hasn't happened yet. And so at the time of the writing of this particular letter to the first century Christians, the Hebrews, if you will, the writer of Hebrews is trying to help them to understand the validity of the faith that is in Jesus Christ. We've seen that portrayed in the fact that Jesus Christ 
is the creator. He's greater than all a creator, chapter 1. He's greater than all the angels, still in chapter 1. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Abraham. Now he comes to this text where now he is saying he's even greater than the old covenant. And so we're going to plow through this a little bit, if we may. But in most recent years, I'm sure that uh, most, some of you here are still my age. How many of you are 68 and over? Can I see your hands, please? Amen. Well, you would know what I'm talking about here now. Because there was a time when we didn't have electric windows in cars. Can I get an amen from you? Yeah. The rest of them, these kids, they got no idea. There was a time we didn't have, well, we did have air conditioning. It was 55 MPH. <laughs> and you rolled your windows down. We didn't have some of the luxuries. Talk about color TV. That came into being in the late set or 80s, or I'm sorry, the 60s, 1960s, and the early 70s. Color TV. Just think of what color TV has been replaced with. You got color TV, then you go to large screen, then you're supposed to go to flat screen. Of course, I don't match that. Flat screen. <laughs> Finally, plasma. And now what? Now what? Used to be tape cassette players. How many of you had a cassette player in your first vehicle? Amen. Hallelujah. I hope you've kept them. You can sell them on eBay, get you a lot of money. CDs were replaced, or cassettes were replaced by CDs. CDs now are replaced by download from, from a file. Well, then you got, well, what's going to replace the file? All of these things have come and gone. They have been replaced, if you will, by, quote, something that's to be better. I've not yet heard a lot of farmers being excited about having electric tractors. <laughs> Take stock in, if you will, in generators, gas-operated generators. They're going to need one to recharge their tractors in the field. But things are being replaced. Obsolete, we call them. Everything's obsolete. There was a time when I, and I still don't know how to even uh, integrate a time and a date on a, uh, a player that plays music. Movies, cassette tape, or I guess, I don't, VCA, VCR. What? Now you don't need to do that. Now you're all thinking, what's going to replace pastors? <laughs> Can you imagine coming to church today, an electronic pastor? Oh, nothing happening there. Let's go home. Oh, better yet. Let's go get some refreshments. Well, thus we find ourselves in the argument of Hebrews chapter 8. If you haven't already gotten there, I invite you to turn to that book, specifically this chapter. 
Because the chapter in verses 1 and 2 opens up with sort of a, if you will, a brief understanding of what has already been done. Almost an, all right, whose phone is on? Stand up and confess your sin before God. (laughs) It's almost like bullet point things that the author has done here in the first two chapters. He begins by saying, now the main point is this. That should grab your attention. That should get your full, if you will, focus on what the author of this wonderful book is about to declare. This is the main point. And there are three of them. In in verse 1, it talks about, we have a great high priest who is greater than those of the old old covenant. Remember, Jesus is forever after the order of Melchizedek. God gave an oath When he said, when it was penned in Psalm 110 and verse 4, where you shall always be after the order of Melchizedek. And we talked about that. We realized that the priest Melchizedek met Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. And it was there that we come to realize it was there that Abraham gave an offering to him. Now, we were also told in the scriptures that this Melchizedek, we don't have any genealogy of him. We have no record of him even dying. He had no beginning, no dying. And we talked about the fact that that can be misunderstood in too many ways. But in reality... Jesus being after that order reflected upon the fact that it wasn't genealogy that made Jesus the superior high priest. It was his character. It was his character. The other high priests that served under the Levitical priesthood had to have the proper genealogy. And you remember we went to the book of Nehemiah And as the priests came back from captivity in Babylon, they said, hey, I'm part of the priesthood. And the other priest said, show us your genealogy. They lost it. And because of that, they could no longer serve in that capacity. So when the writer of Hebrews starts off by, this is the main point, that Jesus Christ is the high priest. And he's better greater, superior to those of the old priest of, if we will, of the old covenant. The second point he makes is very good. Our high priest sits in the heavens at the right hand of God. Now, why would he include that, do you think? Well, I'm hoping that your mind goes to the fact that the reason he's sitting is because his work is finished It's a recapture of John chapter 19. When Jesus is on the cross, he said, it is finished. It's done. Jesus Christ has become the propitiation, the satisfaction, if you will, of a holy God and all that he did and all that he presented. 
It was by his finished work upon the cross that God, the holy God, was satisfied for the sacrifice of sins of the world. And so he is seated, but he's also placed at the right hand, a place of authority, a place of superiority, a place, if you will, that dictates that everything that he did, everything that he says, everything that he does has the authority of heaven. Now, Jesus reminded his disciples of that in, in Matthew chapter 28 when he said, all authority was given unto me. He holds the keys, if you will. He is the authority. Thirdly, in verse 2, he ministers in the true tabernacle made by God, not by man. He ministers as our faithful high priest in heaven. Now, that, that phrase, true tabernacle, is not meant to contrast something genuine with something that is counterfeit. No. As if the old earthly tabernacle in which the Levitical priests performed sacrifices was false. No, that's not what that word means at all. Rather, the term refers to a reality that stands behind a copy or representation. Let me give you an illustration of what we mean by that. How many of you have pictures on your wall of family members? Well, we, we all have that, right? We all have that. I carry some pictures of my grandchildren in my wallet. I have a a, a, a big thing that I put all of their pictures on and, and people come in and say and they say well who are those oh those are my grandchildren no they're not those are just pictures of them obviously during the Christmas season I would just as soon have pictures of them <laughs> but they all show up <laughs> in person but we say when we have a picture, this is my family. No, it's a representation of flesh and blood that you know. And so when the, the writer of Hebrews uses that phrase, the true tabernacle, he's not referring to something that's false. What he's referring to is someone, something that represents the reality. Now, we'll get to this a little bit later, but, but hold on to that thought. The earthly tabernacle and the earthly priesthood are representation of the real heavenly tabernacle and the heavenly, if you will, priesthood. So where did this heavenly tabernacle come from? Well, verse 2. It's interesting. It says that this Jesus, this majesty, a, a minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle that was set up by the Lord and not by man. This tabernacle, if you will, the Lord himself pitched it. He, he's, he's the one who designed the tabernacle. He's the one who set it up for the purpose. So like the earthly realm, the heavenly real is a creation, if you will, 
of God. But whereas the earthly tabernacle, the holy tent of meeting, which originally hosted the Levitical priests and their sacrificial worship, was put up and taken down by human hands. The heavenly tabernacle, though, was erected by God himself. And such then, the earthly tabernacle was self-evidently a temporary dwelling. The heavenly tabernacle is designed to be eternal. Now in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 3 to 6, the author goes on further to unpack, if you will, the distinction between the earthly tabernacle and the heavenly tabernacle. He, he distinguishes between that which is temporary to that which is eternal. That which is changing, that which is changeless. Now we have to let our fingers do some running this morning. To understand what the author is talking about here, we have to go back into history to find out when did this all begin. Our journey takes us to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus 3. I love that. That clock hasn't moved a minute. Exodus chapter 3. Moses meets God at a burning bush. But you'll notice the place that that took, that that instant happened it says for us in chap verse chapter 3 verse 1 meanwhile Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro the priest of Midian he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb the mountain of God the word Horeb there also means Mount Sinai the same place. So Moses is at this mountain, Horeb, the mountain of God, Sinai. And during this particular discussion, which I love and I don't have time to develop it, maybe sometime in the rapture I will, but I don't have time to discuss it right now. The issue is, is that God says to Moses, when I take the people out of Egypt... And I'm going to, I'm going to use you, Moses. You're going to bring them to this mountain, to this place where I am going to speak to them through you. Now, we need to journey a few pages ahead. Chapter 19, Exodus 19. Excuse me. Verse 1. Oh, no, it's, In the third month, 
From the very day the Israelites left the land of Egypt, they came to the Sinai wilderness. They traveled from Rephidim, came to the Sinai wilderness, and camped in the wilderness. Israel camped there in front of the mountain. God brought them to his mountain, Horeb, Mount Sinai, same place. And it was there, as you remember from your Sunday school lessons, that Moses went to the top of that mountain and there he got instructions from God. But what we're told also, we'll get there, what we're told also is that there was a model for Moses to see concerning the implementation and the building, if you will, of the tabernacle. It was there for Moses to see. Well, how do you know that, Pastor? I'm glad you asked. Go to chapter 25. Chapter 25 and verse 40. Moses is listening to God and God tells him, be careful. Now, when God tells you to be careful, I kind of wonder if the thunder last night that we heard. Uh, did you hear the thunder last night? Some ladies over here don't, didn't hear any, but the thunder last night, it rumbled. And I said, yes, Lord, what are you saying? I wonder if he's saying, be careful. Because that's what he said here. Moses told Moses, be careful to make them according to the pattern you have been shown on the mountain. What is he talking about? The whole implementation of the tabernacle worship, all of the instruments, all of what is supposed to it look like, what is supposed to do, everything. And God warns Moses, don't change a thing. This is my design. Mine. Now, go back to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. Now this text. Oh, Lord have mercy. Now this text in chapter 8 begins to enlighten us to the fact of what the author is writing. Why is he saying these things? Because he is telling the people, look at verse 6. For God said, or verse 5, for God said, be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. The author is reminding them concerning the instructions of Moses to prove that even though the tabernacle that was to be used on this earth was to be an, a replica, a representation of that which is in heaven. 
And God's instructions to Moses and the author here reminds the people of Israel, the Jewish Christians, be careful. Don't change a thing of this tabernacle. But something is going to change. Because in doing this, he's referring to the superiority of the true tabernacle and glory. And we have this faithful high priest who ministers there for us. Now, lest you be confused, he is not offering sacrifices day after day. Go to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 3. You'll see this. We'll get to Hebrews chapter 10 sometime. Hebrews chapter 10. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the reality itself of those things, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshipers purified once and for all would no longer have any consciousness of sin, but the sacrifice there is a reminder of sins year after year, for it is impossible for the blood of goats and bulls to take away sin. Jesus did not offer more than once for all himself. And when he offered himself on the cross, he was literally being poured out on the altar of God in heaven. That's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get across to these individuals who are thinking, we got to go back. No, do not go back. Because Jesus offered once for all, never to be sacrificed again. Oh, we need to continue. In chapter 6, I'm sorry, chapter 8, verse 6, the problem is resolved. Christ is a high priest and offers both gifts and sacrifices, but not in the earthly tabernacle according to the old covenant law established by Moses. Now, go to chapter 9, Hebrews 9, verse 11. It should have been one of the services that I had different people read things, but I didn't want to surprise all of you. Chapter 9, verse 11. But Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come in the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands that is not of this creation. He entered the most holy place once for all time. 
not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal salvation once for all. And as the writer continues, he talks about as Christ has a more excellent ministry. Means this, there's nothing else that could be offered other than Christ and Christ alone. It's finished. It's done. Then in chapter 8 and verse 6, he points out that Jesus Christ is the mediator of this new covenant. Amazing. You'll notice in chapter 7, verse 22, what is said in chapter 8 and verse 6. Virtually the same thing, but it says in chapter 7, verse 22, but of this oath, Jesus has also become the guarantee of a better covenant. I wonder if there will ever be a guarantee on a vehicle that lasts a lifetime. There used to be the Midas muffler commercial. You all remember that? Those of you that are 68 and older, let me see your hands again. Remember the old Midas commercial? Well, the guy is coming in and he's got this Model A or Model T, I don't know what the difference, and he gets a new muffler on it. And the guy's really old. And he said, see you again, boys. Midas used to have a lifetime guarantee of the muffler. Do they still have that now? I don't know. I, whatever. You know, the catalytic converters, they get cut off and sold on eBay anyway, so it doesn't much matter. But because of this statement, now the author of this book goes to the word of God for the solidification, for the authorization, and for the standard of the things that he has just said. And he quotes Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. It's written for you here in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7, through the end of the chapter. It is a replica of Jeremiah 31, verse 31 to 34. It's called the new covenant that Jeremiah got the information from God. And dear brothers and sisters, this is where you should get really excited. Because this new covenant opened the door for Gentiles to come to know and understand Jesus Christ as their Savior. If you read that, I'll give you that homework. Read Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. And you will see, as God says, these people, the Israelites, messed it up. And I'm changing it. I'm giving a new and better covenant that whereby I'll write the word, my word, on their hearts. No one's going to have to teach them. They're going to know it. 
Oh, we'll get into that in a few, few minutes, if we may. Oh, my time is slipping. I got, I got to go to four things. Four things that this new covenant does. Four things. The new covenant offers internal motivation and power instead of external lists. It offers, if you will, an internal motivation and power instead of external lists. I'm finding in my age that I must carry around a daytimer. I must write out things that I need to do, and it is a list of things. But there was a time when I could remember everything. I knew dates, I knew times. I knew where I needed to do, where I needed to be with no problem. Now I've got a day timer about that thick that I don't go anywhere without it. I don't even go down and get gas for my lawnmowers without that day timer because it's reminding me, get gas for lawnmowers, which I'm loving this rain, by the way. I fertilized my lawn. Oh, I can't. This is going to be fun. You know what that means? I raise my mower so I don't cut so much off, mow it, then I lower it again and mow it again. I get to mow it twice in one day. It doesn't get any better than that. Let's let me go to a Shakespeare aside. I really hope there's grass in heaven. Can I get an Amen. Anyway, so this new covenant offers internal motivation and power instead of external lists. Well, what do you mean by that, Pastor? Well, the old covenant with hundreds of commands, statutes, and ordinances was addressed to a people with hard, unregenerate hearts. They were obligated to keep these stipulations of this covenant, whether they felt like it or not. The motivations to obey were external consequences in the form of rewards for obedience, punishment for disobedience. That's what Moses, as he was about ready to end his ministry in Deuteronomy chapter 28, he reminded the children of Israel, when you go into the promised land, if you do what God tells you to do, you will be blessed this way. But if you refuse, you will be disciplined this way. And so submission to God and his will comes as a result of faith and love, not fear and judgment. The new covenant is for the purpose of transformation. Taking that which is old and making it new. That which is lost, that it can be found. 
that which is dead and trespasses and sin to become alive in Christ. The second thing, <coughs> excuse me, that this new covenant does, it is based on a close relationship instead of a distant fear. We didn't take the time to read uh, Exodus chapter 19 and all of its writing. But when the children of Israel arrived at God's mountain, God told Moses to tell them, do not get close. Do not touch it. You stay away from it. Even if your cattle or your oxen or your sheep touch it, they will die. Now, God calls us to the cross. Come to the cross. Come. The relationship that was once out of fear now becomes Abba, Father, Daddy. Because of the wonder of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul and other apostles, as they begin their epistles, they write, brothers, sisters in Christ. The new covenant establishes this relationship. Thirdly, the new covenant provides confidence and assurance instead of insecurity and uncertainty. Confidence and assurance. In the old covenant system, some of the nations of Israel knew the Lord intimately and personally in, in a saving sense as father and friend. Others in Israel knew him only as judge and lawgiver. In other words, the situation under the old covenant was that of a mixed company of believers and unbelievers all marked by the external sign of circumcision, but not all having the circumcision of the heart. And in Christ, when people enter into the new covenant community, not by external sign of circumcision, but by the in inner transformation called the new birth, born again. Remember John chapter 3? How can a man be born again? Nicodemus asked. And that which is flesh is flesh. But that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Being born again comes under the new covenant that Christ, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life transformation the last one the new covenant emphasizes forgiveness and mercy instead of failure and wrongdoing mercy isn't it amazing that in Hebrews chapter 10 the availability to the throne of God 
is described as a place of grace and mercy. It's amazing. God's mercy. One of the things I do not keep in my day timer, and maybe I should start doing it, is the number of times that I failed Christ in the day. Keep a running account. But you want to know something? Jesus doesn't keep that account. His grace and his mercy overshadows that. That whosoever confesses their sin, he's faithful and just to forgive and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. His mercy and his grace. That's what this first century Hebrew Christians needed to know. Going back is not the answer. Giving up is not the answer. It's following the one who is our faithful high priest, who has established this new covenant so that now you can have a personal relationship with God as a child of God and his grace and mercy meets you every single day. That's what makes this chapter so powerful. In chapter 9 and chapter 10, we'll continue this discussion. But he sets the stage to help us to realize this new covenant and the availability of it is eternal. As we close, let's pray together. God, I can't even begin to understand all of the applications that there are in Hebrews chapter 8. All I do know is this, is that you are our faithful high priest who's entered once for all as a sacrifice for the sin of the world that is available, the forgiveness that is available to anyone who would call upon the name of the Lord, then they shall be saved. It's available. It doesn't come through the area of external rites and lists. It comes through simple grace through faith. An internal transformation whereby we can boldly stand and proclaim that Christ is still worth following because of the new covenant that has been established that anyone who would believe would have eternal life. How we praise you for that, Lord. And may we not forget the power that is there, the forgiveness that is there, the joy that is there as we come into the very presence of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray.
Amen.